So if you've been around uh, here a while or you know me at all, then you also know that I love a good story. I like to tell stories. And every once in a while, before I, I tell one, I'll have to preface it by saying, this is a true story. Because sometimes they're a bit outlandish and I find myself in some peculiar peculiar situations, so I need to, to quantify it with, with those words. Over the next few months, uh, we're going to be in some stories. We're going to look at some stories in the Old Testament in which God did some profound things through very peculiar circumstances and, and situations. I love these stories because stories shape us and transform us. See, each day we, we interact with a couple of things. We interact with data and we interact with stories. I mean, each morning I wake up and I look at data. I look at the weather on my app to, to decide what I'm going to wear that day. I look at my calendar so I don't miss any of my appointments. I open up my bank account to see what's there or more realistically what's not there. Data informs me, it helps me, but, but stories, stories shape us, words and, and, and images. Today we're going to take a look at a rather chilling story uh, about a man named Abraham and his son Isaac. The story takes place in Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him his two servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went along together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Great question. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and lay him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. 
Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place that the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of your enemies and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. One of the greatest moments of my life was the birth of my two children. When my kids were born, I, I wept with joy. And I, I'm not really a crier. I mean, I have nothing against crying, but emotionally, that's just not something that happens to me very often. But in that moment, as I held those, those two, those precious little lives in my hands, there were, there were tears of joy. And if I could have read the future, there might have been tears of another emotion as well. But that was way in the future. I just, I held those children. And my my children are everything to me. They are quite literally the apple of my eye. And so you can say whatever you want about me, do whatever you want to me. It's fine. I don't really mind that much, but don't mess with my kids. I'll do anything for my children. And so it's with a father's heart that I read this story, and I find it hard. I've got got questions as a father reading this particular story. I mean, questions like, why would God ever ask a father to do this? And then why would a father in turn respond and go through with it? Is this infanticide? Is is there not another way to test someone else's faith? And where's Sarah in all this? His wife, the mother, what would she have to say about this? Yep, this is a pretty hard story for me to read. And at first glance, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, particularly what we know about God from the New Testament. And yet we cannot shy away from difficult stories simply because there are not always easy answers. The story that we read this morning is one of dramatic intensity and anguished faith. Now we we know the end of the story. We know it it was just a test. We know that God would never actually ask anyone to sacrifice their child on an altar and burn them. We know that to be true. And so it would be very easy to reduce this story to platitudes because we know how it ends. But focusing on the end ignores the bigger questions and the larger lessons. So over the next few moments as we open up this story, I don't think it's going to be as neat and pretty as other stories in the Bible because it doesn't do justice putting the story in a neat box with a a pretty, pretty bow. But it does cause us to ask some more profound questions. See, I don't believe that we can read or interact with the Bible 
as if it were a series of tweets on social media. And though I believe that to be true, I do it all the time, and I bet you do too. And what I mean by that is we take small phrases and chunks from the Bible, and particularly the ones that we like or agree with, and we create these theologies around them, and we take this chunk and this chunk and this chunk and maybe ignore the chunks we don't like or don't fully understand. And yet when we, when we read the Bible that way, we ignore the, the grand narrative of what the scripture is and sometimes come to some very unfortunate conclusions. Much like the unfortunate conclusion the atheist Richard Dawkins came to when he wrote in his book, The God Delusion, about the God of the Old Testament, he writes, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, an ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pesticidal, megalomaniac, and who is a capriciously malevolent bully. Get out your thesaurus to read that statement. And yet, it would be a fairly accurate statement if we read the Bible like we read social media tweets. But we can't. I mean, how how often have we seen an article online and we liked the title and so we forwarded it or reposted it and not even, even read the article? We just liked the title. Well, that doesn't do justice because you don't know the, the whole story. The title is not enough to hear the heart of the author. So when we engage the Bible, when we engage stories like the one today, we read it in context, yes, but we also have to read it within the context of the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation, letting the Bible interpret itself, letting the Bible speak for itself, because when we do that, things become a bit more clear. So for the next moment, I I want to expand the story, because the story of, of Abraham does not begin in Genesis chapter 22. The story of Abraham begins in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham. We meet him, he is, he's rich, he is a nomad, he is a worshiper of pagan gods. And seemingly out of nowhere, Yahweh speaks to him and says to Abraham, follow me and go to a land that I will show you. And this experience was so captivating and so compelling and so real that Abraham packs up everything that he owns, his family, and starts walking to the place this God Yahweh tells him to go. In Genesis chapter 15, God meets Yahweh again and establishes a covenant with him. A covenant is a a binding relationship, one that cannot be broken. And within this covenant, God makes a series of promises to Abraham, one of which is your descendants will be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Now, the only problem is that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are infertile and they're rather old. They're almost a hundred. Then we come to Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abraham, I'm going to mark this covenant with you with a visible reality. It's going to require some surgery. Every male in your family needs to be circumcised. I'm trying to imagine that conversation. Then in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham is around 100 years old. Sarah is around 90. And they give birth to their first son and name him Isaac. 
I mean, can you imagine? Let's just, let's just try and put ourselves in the story for a second. I'm almost, I'm almost 50. If my wife were to come to me and say, we're having another baby. I love children. I do. But that would, that would be something. That would be something. So they had this child, 90 to 100 years old. And then it seems between Genesis chapter 21 and Genesis chapter 22, there's a, a period of time that passes and it. It seems to be a season of rest, prosperity, things are going okay. You ever just need a break? You just want things to be okay and good. And it just seems like everything is going okay for Abraham and his wife, Sarah. He has this child. And the scriptures say sometime later, uh, sometime later, God said to Abraham, here I am. And God said, take your son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him. Now, Isaac is older. Some time has passed. He's old enough uh, to carry wood on his back because Abraham straps it to him. Now, this is the, the, the shocking part of the story that we, I think, have a hard time wrapping our mind around. Yet, understanding the culture of the day, child sacrifice was unfortunately not all that uncommon. And so when when Abraham heard these words to go sacrifice your son, it would not have been as shocking to him as it is to us. Oh, sure, emotionally harsh, but in his day, culturally logical. One of the major people groups that surrounded the area was a group called the Canaanites. The Canaanites worshipped a god of fertility, and their god of fertility demanded sacrifice. And so the Canaanites sacrificed their first the first of their produce, the first of their livestock, and the first of their male children to the God of fertility, hoping that doing that would bless them with more children, more livestock, and more more crops. And in their, their mind, this made sense. God will bless you, but you owe him. Well, of course, that's a bit irrelevant for us because none of us would ever sacrifice our child. And if we did, we'd be in jail. And I don't believe that God, that Christ would ever ask us to do such a thing. And so what does this story mean for us practically? Well, I would first begin by arguing that the story isn't about child sacrifice at at all. There's a bigger question in the story. And the question is, does God test people? Does God test people today? Again, taking the Bible as a whole, the Old Testament and the New Testament working together, the answer does seem to be yes. Which then I ask a bigger question, but, but why then? Why would, why would God allow our faith to be tested? To that I would say and argue it's because our faith needs to move from a cognitive faith to an experiential one. When I was in high school, I, I felt God's nudge. I, I felt called to go into ministry, to be a pastor, full-time church work. And so I did what I was told you were supposed to do. I went to Bible college, got a degree in theology, and then went to seminary. While I was in Bible college and seminary, I was taught how to be a pastor. I was taught the things that pastors do. You write sermons, you learn pastoral counseling, you learn how to run a church, you learn how to visit the sick 
in the hospital, visit the elderly in their homes. And so I spent years learning how to be a pastor. And I knew a lot of stuff about being a pastor while I was in college. So much so right before I graduated, I thought, well, this is easy. I could do this. I mean, what's so, what's so hard about this? Write a few sermons, visit a few sick people. It's pretty simple. Well, then something happened. I actually became a pastor. And what I knew cognitively about being a pastor, oh, most of it was true, but the experience of being a pastor was rather different. See, in my head, I had this logical idea of what it meant. I had all the information. But then when, when the information is tested through experience, that's a whole nother thing. James, the brother of Jesus, writing in the New Testament, says this, the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's not knowing about your faith that produces endurance. It's it's the testing of your faith that produces endurance. We do not know how well something will function unless we test it, unless we experience it. In 1997, I stood at the altar and I made some commitments. I made some, some vows to my wife. And the minister who administered the vows said something like this to me. Do you, Michael take Rebecca to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold in sickness and in health and for better or for worse, richer or poor. And I said, yes. But as I stood there, what I, what I think I heard or most probably heard was better, healthy, and richer. <laughs> but you can't judge the strength of your marriage on better, healthier, and richer. You judge the strength of your marriage on worse sickness and poverty. Because I I said I do to something I had not yet experienced. And yet when I experienced worse sickness and poverty, because I experienced all three, and so did she, the strength of my marriage was evident. Last year, last month, we celebrated 26 years, and it's not all been roses and sunshine. But what I can tell you, and I verified this with my wife, so I I speak truth, (laughs) our marriage is the best it's ever been, and her words were, her words, not mine, I feel like we're connected at the level of the soul. But that came through, through testing through worse, through sickness, and through poverty. See, the, the strength of something is not obvious unless it's challenged. The strength of our faith is not obvious until it has been challenged. And my, my faith has been tested, much like yours. And the question I ask is, was God the author of the test, or did God simply allow the test to happen? Yeah, maybe, I don't know, probably both. And not every test is bad, Not every test ends in suffering. Some tests are just, what are you willing to do? When I graduated from college with my pastoral license in hand, ready to go change the world, ready for everyone to like me because I'm a pastor. 
How was I disappointed, but... I was offered a job out of college in Detroit, Michigan as a youth pastor that paid a lot of money for a youth pastor. It was close to my family. I thought, this is it. Why wouldn't this be it? I can live the high life. And the nudge I got from God was, no, this is not the place for you. A few days later, I received an offer to move my brand new wife to the inner city of Los Angeles to live in dire poverty. And I mean poverty. And we said, yeah, why not? This seems to be God's will. And it was a test. When my wife and I lost two children through miscarriage, our faith was tested. When our two children were born, both of them were NICU babies. Let me tell you about a test of your faith. Standing over your newborn child in the neonatal intensive care unit, that'll test your faith. When my mom's, my wife's mom died at 59 years old of a brain aneurysm unexpectedly, that tested our faith. We went through a series of four or five years in which our marriage did in fact struggle. And it tested our faith. It tested our faith deeply. In 2009, I received a phone call, was extended an offer to moved my entire family across the country from Colorado to Wisconsin to a state I'd never been to, to a city I didn't know a single soul. I tested my faith a little bit. My wife in her 40s was sick and bedridden for four months. That that tested my faith. And then when the, the global pandemic struck our world and People said all kinds of things about me, called me names, told me what I should or shouldn't do, what I was or wasn't doing when it seemed like I was offending everybody no matter what I did. That that tested my faith. That deeply tested my faith. And yet in every single test, my faith moved from the cognitive to the experiential and it produced strength and endurance. See, Abraham's test, I don't think Abraham was was acting irrationally. He had a reasoned faith. I believe that because Abraham was a guy who could stake his life on the goodness of God. See, See, the writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, references this story in the Old Testament. And the writer says that, that Abraham believed God and trusted God so deeply that even if he went through with the sacrifice, he trusted God enough that, that God would raise his son from the dead. See, every test produces a response and an outcome. Verse 3, the next morning, Abraham gets up, loads his donkey, takes his two servants, his son Isaac, cuts enough wood for the offering, sets out to where God tells him to go. On the third day, Abraham looks up in the distance, sees the place, says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We'll worship and come back. Abraham takes the wood, places it on his son. Abraham carries the fire and the knife. His son says, Father, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb and the burnt offering. And the two of them went on together. So there's a few responses to this test. First, Abraham responds by simply getting up and going and doing exactly what God asked him to do. Now, what's not written in the story is the three-day journey that it takes to get from 
where Abraham lived to this mountain. And if I were to read between the lines, I can only imagine what was going through Abraham's head as he walked that journey. As he pitched his tent at night and sat around the campfire, I wonder what thoughts he had as he wrestled in his mind, is God really asking me to do this? My promised son, the son given to me in old age. As he got up the next morning and continued his journey, the thought was probably with him as he sat down the next night in the evening. As he contemplated what was going to happen in the coming days, I can't imagine that it was anything less than an impassioned, agonizing struggle. And what the struggle produced was trust, because that's Abraham's second response. Because what he says to his servants, he says, we will worship and we will come back. Not we will worship and I will come back. We will worship and we will come back. And he says to his son, God's going to provide the ram. I trust God. Now, now I understand the struggle. There can be difficulty with trust when you're in the thick of it. I wish I couldn't tell you how many times in the thick of some of my tests in which I said, why me? Why now? Why this? Where are you? The doubts that happen. There's another story in the Old Testament about a man named Job. Job is a man, if you're not familiar with the story, that quite literally loses everything as part of a test. His possessions, his family loses everything, his health. We find Job in this story, right in the middle of it, sitting in the dust. He's covered in sores. The scripture says he's scratching himself with poverty, with pottery, and his wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? That's a bad place if your wife says, do you just curse God and die? That's, That's a rough place. But Job says, no. Though he slay me, I will trust him. I trust him. One of the values of our church is everything speaks. Our message, our life sends a message. Our actions during test times of testing send an observable message to those around us. So Abraham's third response is he, he acted, he obeyed, even though it did not make sense and We come to this part in the story. We reach the place. Abraham builds an altar. He arranges the wood. He binds his son Isaac. What was Isaac thinking? Lays him on the altar and reaches out his hand and takes the knife. Like I see this story happening in slow motion. Abraham doesn't know the... We know the end. Abraham does not know the end of the story. And yet it becomes the shaping of an authentic faith. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do nothing to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
So this experience becomes part of Abraham's faith journey, and he learns something about God. He learns that God is the God who will provide. There's this image of this ram caught in the thicket on the screens here. This picture is also in the lobby. When you walked in, maybe you saw all these prints hanging from the ceiling. Those prints represent a different story that we'll dive into each week. But this print is a reminder that that God is provider. The Jewish people commemorate God providing by blowing a shofar. A shofar is a hollowed-out ram's horn that is blown during traditional Jewish worship, and it is a reminder of this story that God is the God who provides. Even in the midst of our testing, see, an, an untested faith really is an impotent faith. I mean, every test that I've experienced, I, I haven't liked any of them, but they've strengthened me, every single one. And by dismissing our tests, we dismiss the very things that will make us strong. Sometimes I wonder if we're, we're losing our stamina as human beings. Crumbling at the first sign of, of struggle. Maybe it's just me, but it seems as though so many are offended or triggered or discouraged or... Part of the challenge is we, we've created this ideal, an ideal life. I have an ideal life that I'd like to live. See, in my ideal, I'm about 20 pounds lighter. In my ideal, my bank account has a few more zeros. In my ideal, everybody likes me. In my ideal, I can come to work and there's never any problems, ever. In my ideal, I'm 100% healthy. In my ideal, I can get off my cholesterol medication. See, in my ideal, things are good. And sometimes my ideal happens. But most of the time, I live my life in this land called normal. And in normal... I'm 20 pounds overweight, I'm on cholesterol medication, and my bank account is not what I hoped it would be. But I don't fall apart, and it's okay, because God meets me in the idea, the ideal, but he also meets me in the normal. So what do we do when we don't have the ideal? What do we do when things don't make sense? What do we do when our faith is tested? Do we have quiet trust, or do we have visible dismay and irritation? I don't think God tests us because he does not know how strong we are. I think in part he tests us because we don't know how strong we are. You're stronger than you think. I want to offer a next step for this week, uh, something practically that we can do over the course of the summer to wrestle with some of these stories because we're, we're learning about the story of God, but I also want to challenge you to lean into the story of yourself. 10 or 15 years ago, when I was in a particular time of of testing, I I needed a way to wrestle through what I was thinking and feeling. And so someone suggested to me that I journal. Now, I'm not really a journaler. That was never something that I thought, well, I should start a journal. But I did because I didn't know what else to do. And it's a practice that I've actually kept over the last 
10 or 15 years. I don't journal every day. I don't even journal every week. But every once in a while, when I'm wrestling through something, I get a piece of paper and a pen, and I, I write out what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling. And there's something about taking a pen and, and placing it on a piece of paper and just writing helps me to gain clarity and thought. And so I want to challenge you, over the summer, as we wrestle with some of these stories, as we wrestle with ourselves, that maybe you write some things down, that maybe do some journaling. It doesn't have to be every day or every week, but just on occasion. You may think, well, I, you know, I'm like, I don't have a journal. Well, you're in luck. <laughs> because we've produced these, these journals. Uh, they've got the True Story logo on them. They're out in the bookstore. They're three bucks, uh, which is what they cost us. We don't make any money off. We're probably losing money off them. But I encourage you to pick one up and take the pen. We even gave you a Northbrook pen. That was free. And attached to it is a bookmark, also free, that has some journaling prompts. That if you don't know where to start or what to do, we've given you a springboard and some starting point. It's, it's one way to see yourself in the bigger story of eternity. I don't know where you find yourself today. But I hope as you leave that you'll leave knowing that in the midst of whatever, God is your provider. I'm grateful, oh God, for this story. One that at first reading is, just it's a bit troubling to me as a father, and yet I know the story is not so much about Abraham sacrificing his son. The story is about testing and trust and provision. I do ask specifically for those that are here this morning or with us online. For those that may say, I am right now in the middle of a testing of my faith. And I don't fully get it. I specifically pray for those that you would meet them like you, you met Abraham that you would meet them in the, the thick of it. Because like Abraham, we don't always know how the story's going to end, but we can trust you as the God who will provide. And so as you write our story into the story of eternity, would you, would you come alongside us, guide us, and shape us and form us ultimately into your image. I'm grateful, oh God. I'm grateful that the testing of my faith produces endurance. Would you give us endurance?